to be with you. What a, what a youthful and vibrant church. When we did the huddle this morning, someone, um, Jason, said uh, as a way of warming us up, tell the person next to you your favorite emoji. And the person next to me, when we had to do that, said, do you use emojis? <laughs> you know you're getting old when someone has to ask you that. My si- I once dabbed in front of my six-year-old daughter, and she looked at me and said, how do you know about that? So um, there you go. As Jason said, I'm the executive director of Sanctuary, and we assist churches in navigating the topic of mental health by equipping the church with training and tools and resources to indeed, uh, with the goal that churches become the sanctuary that they should be for people in the midst of crisis. And uh, many of our experiences at Sanctuary, people who call us or email us or talk to us, is that there are many churches that aren't doing that. There are many churches that uh, are struggling to meet the need of the community around them. And so Sanctuary uh, is this cool, quirky organization. We haven't found anyone else quite like us anywhere that is creating resources to help the church. Uh, In fact, last week I was in England, um, which is where I'm from. I've lived here for four and a half years. Um, But I went back to England to have a meeting at Lambeth Palace, uh, which is the home of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, to have a meeting uh, to discuss our course that we've created and getting this into churches in England as well. So exciting times for us and um, work that I'm sure you'll hear more of in the future. As you can tell, as I've already said, I'm not from uh, here. I moved here with my wife, uh, Annie, uh, four and a half years ago, and our daughter, Evie, who is now six. Uh, We also have a son, Jack, who is three. Uh, So that's us. Uh, They're attending our church in Vancouver. We attend Tent Church in Kitsilano. Uh, My wife is a children's pastor there. Before coming to Vancouver, I was the senior pastor of a congregation in England for about eight years. And um, that ended uh, because I wasn't in such a good place. Uh, Fortunately, by God's grace, I was able to get out while I wasn't too unwell. But I myself have been struggling, uh, languishing, as I would put it, in my mental health without having any way of understanding that, or framing that, or talking about that. There was no safe space for me as a pastor, or at least that's how it felt. The town I pastored in is called Fareham. It's very near to Portsmouth or Southampton, if you're interested. So this morning, um, I'm going to bring some reflections on Psalm 130, and looking at how uh, this psalm has something to teach us about how we can respond when we are, or those that we love, or those that we know, are suffering in their mental health. So um, before I do that, let me just pray, and then I'll begin. Heavenly Father, we come before you as creatures made by you, made in your image. And yet we come with our brokenness, and we come humbled that you would call us into a relationship with your perfect self. In this place this morning, we ask that you would be Lord of everything and that we would rest in your lordship as we discuss mental health and the struggles that many of us have. We acknowledge your goodness, your love, and your life in this place this morning, and we ask for your mercy. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So in times of despair, when we don't know how to respond, where we can feel isolated, where we feel alone, we don't know how to let others in, we can turn to Psalm 130. Or as I've said, if you know someone who is in despair and uh, you don't know how to help them, 
we can turn to Psalm 130. There are some clues here that give us how to respond. So let's read from Psalm 130. It's going to be on the screen. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This ancient psalm, this ancient uh, text, just, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, so the Bible was kind of a given. It was kind of just, kind of taken a little bit for granted. But we get to read this ancient text preserved over thousands of years. And this particular psalm is one of those psalms that speaks out of someone's pain. If someone gave you a letter where they were speaking out of their pain and allowed you to read it, I don't know about you, but I'd feel pretty privileged. I'd feel a sense of awe that they were letting me into their pain. And here we read of someone's pain, probably David. We read of this pain that he is speaking out of. This is a holy place. The psalm starts out of the depths, but what are the depths? In the Hebrew scriptures, the depths or deep waters are a metaphor or a poetic image of chaos. It would be like us saying, I feel like I'm drowning. I have no foothold. You're not actually drowning, but the internal feelings of being overwhelmed is like drowning. Some of you will know what that feels like. If you've experienced depression or anxiety, you'll have these moments, these glimpses. That same word is used in Psalm 69 where it says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where I have no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The folds engulf me. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. The late, great Eugene Peterson in the message renders this. Help God. The bottom has fallen out of my life. Probably most of us in this room can remember a time when we've experienced the depths, even if it was just for a moment. Think about that feeling of despair. Think of that moment when you're in your car and you don't quite apply the brakes quickly enough and there's that crunch and that moment of despair. Think of that telephone call you receive from a loved one to tell you some bad news. Despair is around us. It's part of our human experience. Being in the depths is part of what it means to be a human being. And it is a myth that says we have to always be happy. The pursuit of happiness is not a Christian ideal. Uh, our faith speaks of joy. Some, joy is something different to happiness. Happiness is fleeting. It comes and it goes. But joy remains, even in the midst of struggle. Lord, give us joy. But being in the depths, at least for some time, gives us a different way of seeing the world. It gives us insights we would otherwise never have had. When we consider in history, I think of um, the great uh, Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who has basically changed the way we think about things in the West. Uh, he wrote most of his works out of his depression. The Christian German reformer Martin Luther stood up for the people against the then 
powerfully abusive Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because he felt despair at the plight of people. Jesus went to the depths. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paul went there. Jeremiah went there. David went there. Jonah went there. This is part of what it is to be a human. Now, we have to acknowledge there are different levels of despair. Or depression, if we use that word. These depend on how long we feel this way and how much of life we can participate in or not when we're feeling that way. But no matter how hard, no matter how deep we go, this is a hard place to be. And in the depths, we feel very alone. The psalm begins, Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths, I cry to you. Hear my voice. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Like us, the psalmist is in despair, and this psalm teaches us, gives us a response. It gives us words for this time in our lives. When often we don't have words to say, when often we don't feel like crying out, this psalm gives us the courage to cry out. When depression draws us into ourselves, when despair or anxiety seeks to isolate us, this psalm encourages us dare to cry out, to break the silence of the depths, to give us the courage to cry out. Now, even though this psalm begins in the first person, I cry to you, O Lord, it's important to note that this is uh, one of the, uh, a, psalm, a song of ascent. It's the psalms that the Jewish people would sing as they went up toward Jerusalem for the temple holy days and feasts. It is a song of ascent. So this cry goes out from an individual to God. God help me, but it's done together. Alone, yet in community. So the person doesn't just cry out alone, they cry out in the presence of others. And it takes great courage to cry out and be honest about how we're feeling. Those old questions of, will God judge me? Will others judge me? What will people think of me? What will they think of my faith? There is so much stigma around depression. And I would suggest there's probably, I mean, I, I'm not one for making false binaries or false hierarchies, but I suspect the sort of stigma that's attached uh, for men um, to talk about depression is somewhat potent and difficult. Um, there's a lot of men suffer, who suffer in silence for many years and uh, we find out at a time when it's very hard to, to help them. Um, but there is always hope. But men, uh, for depression in men is often seen as a state of weakness. And of course, society is, uh, requires masculine strength. That's what many of us have been told implicitly uh, through our upbringings, through our cultures, and certainly in the church. If I am depressed, surely I am lacking faith in God. That's what we're told. And I will tell you this morning, uh, it's actually the opposite. It has to be the opposite. It takes so much courage and strength to admit our emotions. It takes so much strength to get through depression. Uh, my, my good friend Daryl Johnson um, once said, uh, there's no way uh, out of depression. You have to go through it. It takes a great deal of bravery and strength to get through it. Again, as some of you will know. Depression is stigmatized because we all fear going there. Yet those of us who walk the road of depression are the courageous ones. What about faith? Is acknowledging depression admitting an inferior faith in God? Well, again, to quote Eugene Peterson, who I think is a decent person to quote, 
He says, a Christian is a person who has not decided to ignore suffering, despair, but one who has decided to face it and live through it. That is his definition of a Christian, or at least an aspect of being a Christian. Peterson explains that despair needs to be respected by the Christian community, for we indeed serve a Christ who suffered. So Psalm 130 gives dignity to our despair. It is not something to be silenced in community before God. It is something to be spoken out. And the church has to be the safest place for people to speak out. I was saying to Jason just before the service, if you were going to design an organization or a movement or a means of caring for people in their mental health, you would design the church. Just think about it. Not only are there churches in every town, city, and village, but there is a mandate on the church to offer hope. We're the people who believe in transformation. We believe it's possible. So we have a theology that supports this idea of someone finding hope and moving forward. If only we will make safe space for people to talk. And one of the ways we do that is by talking about it ourselves. It takes great bravery, though. Jesus was an empowerer of the voiceless. You know, Psalm gives dignity to our despair. It says it's something to be spoken out. I love uh, in Mark 5 when uh, the bleeding woman touches the hem of Jesus' garment. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. This woman who had been ceremonially unclean, a woman who had been an outcast from society for as long as she can remember, touches Jesus' garment among the crowd. And what does Jesus say? He says, who touched me? And I think he knew who touched him. But I think he was making a point, a social point. Because for the first time in this poor lady's life, she had to speak up. And this time, every single person was going to listen. All of the religious elite who had ostracized her a whole life, suddenly she's the star of the show. And everyone's going to hear that, no, she's not unclean anymore. Jesus was an empowerer of the voiceless and the marginalized. If you are suffering, if you feel voiceless, if you feel isolated, uh, or you ever do feel that way, know that Jesus wants you to speak up. He is not scared. So it's courageous to cry out, and the psalmist leads us to cry out for two things. He calls us to cry out to be heard. O oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. In the midst of despair, we feel like God is far away. We wonder, is he listening? It's a time of brutal honesty about what we believe and what we don't believe. In times of despair, there's no pretense. In fact, a friend of mine once described it like this. She wrote this. She said, I was going my life, living my life normally. And then one day, suddenly, without any warning, all my assumptions, my presuppositions, and my values were called into question. Everything got thrown up. I didn't know who I was anymore. Imagine how terrifying that must be. So approaching God out of the depths takes great courage and great faith because in spite of the doubts that come, we still cry out. God save us from being a church that only listens to testimonies once people are well. We need testimonies of people who are willing to get up and talk about what they're going through in the midst of it. How powerful is that? That someone can say, I don't feel God, I don't know God, I don't know where he is, I don't know what's going on, but I'm here. God save us from being the people who have to have neat and tidy constructs. 
So approaching God out of the depths takes great courage, and the psalm encourages us to do so. The second thing that the psalmist cries out for is for mercy. The psalmist in the depths has to remind himself and ask that God doesn't keep a record of sins, that God is a forgiving God, that God is merciful. Now, the one thing I'd point out here exegetically, this, this psalm is not saying, it's not specifically talking about depression, right? We're learning some things about how we help people to move through difficult times. Uh, we're not saying that sin and depression are linked there. If anyone who's drawing that connection, that is not, not, not what it's saying. Nor is that what Sanctuary says. I have to make that absolutely clear. But what the point I think we can draw from this psalm, you see, in the depths, people understand two things very well in depression as Christians. First, you have a very acute awareness of the holiness, perfection, and otherness of God. God can seem very distant. The second thing that people in depression as Christians generally have a very acute awareness of is their own shortcomings. So all we can think about often are our shortcomings in the midst of depression. Negative thoughts about ourselves circulate each minute and we wish we could just stop thinking. It's like a plague. Listening to these thoughts is paralyzing. And so with such an acute awareness of God's awesomeness and of our failure, we begin to doubt whether God can accept us. We begin to doubt that God's grace is big enough. Depression and despair leads us to a place where we feel like God won't accept us and it isolates us and it silences us. Now some of this, of course, some of this is real and true, you know. For all of us as human beings, we need to understand how holy God is. God is holy. He is other. We need to understand that. It's true. We need to understand our own brokenness and our own need of God. That's true. But do you see the subtle lie that distorts those truths and makes that an insurmountable or unscalable chasm between us and God? We miss the truth, the central truth of our faith, about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we're isolated and not telling people, we're not reminded of that grace. We're not reminded of that truth that says, Christ loves you as you are. He is available to you as you are. His grace is sufficient. When that voice comes that says, you don't really think God can possibly love you. Did God really say? You've heard that voice before. Did God really say? This is when we need others in our community to give us perspective, to remind us gently about a loving and gracious God. So if that's you this morning, let me assure you that you are loved and accepted by God. And if you feel like you're in trouble, then you have to get in the line behind me. I am a sinner saved by grace. Jesus always embraced those who were lowly in their own self-estimation. The people Jesus rebuked were the lofty, prideful ones who thought they were fine. So know this, you're accepted as you come before God. So how should we respond as a church? I'm coming into land here. Well, I think the first thing we do is we wait. I've uh, heard that you're doing a lot on listening, learning to listen well. This may be another way of saying that, but we need to learn to wait with people. The psalmist says in verse 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits for his word. My soul waits for the, uh, the Lord. More than ones who watch wait for the morning. More than ones who watch wait for the morning. There's lots of waiting going on in those two verses. As caring people, when we see someone in despair, in the depths of depression, we want to help. We want to fix it. 
We wish we could come up with quick fixes. We, we wish we could produce the right miracle or say the right words, that the person would just come right. We've all been there. But it doesn't often work like that. For the record, I'm fine with God healing people instantly. That's, that'd be wonderful. That's great. I'm good with that. But we have to follow the person's lead. They are waiting. This psalm tells us that those who watch, watch for the morning. And guess what? The sun always rises every day. It's inevitable. That is our role as a community. We're the ones who watch and we wait with our friends in the midst of despair. We offer signs of hope along the way. How do you offer signs of hope for someone who's waiting? Someone who's waiting for transformation. Someone who's waiting for Jesus to break in. How do you offer signs of hope? Well, we enact the mercy, love, and acceptance of God. We offer visible signs of God's mercy. You know, the amount of people who talk about their experiences of depression and say how much communion meant to them in the midst of depression. It's like this sense of, I couldn't feel God's grace or love. I didn't know it on, at one level, but I could hold it and I could taste it in the act of communion. We can be present to people, just hanging out with them. We can care for people holistically. We can offer to take them to see a doctor if they need help. We can offer to take them to the counselor. We can share meals together instead of offering advice. Do you know, if ever you need advice, I am brilliant at advice. That seriously, I, I love giving advice. Uh, in 12 years of marriage, when my wife talks to me, I give her advice. And she hasn't yet learned that my advice is so good that she should just forget her worries and listen to my advice. Um, yeah, she'd have a different um, version. What does she say to me? She says, I don't need you to fix it. I need you to listen. Listen, I'm still learning. But when we wait with someone, instead of offering advice, when we incarnate Christ, we trust that God will speak a word of life into our friend's life. That's what it is to wait with someone. And so secondly, the other response of the community is to listen. In verse 7 and 8, the one in despair addresses the community. Now this is the person who's talking about the depths. And then a few verses later, this person says this. This person addresses the rest of the community and says, Oh Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. You know, I don't believe that any experience is meaningless or has to be meaningless. I believe that when someone experiences a time in the depths, they've also experienced the depths of God. In verse 7 and 8, the psalmist, the very one who was crying from the depths, turns to the nation of Israel and offers wisdom about who God is. Wisdom they could only receive having gone to the depths. In the depths, we learn of God's steadfast, faithful love. The Hebrew word is chesed. It's a great word to say. But it's a, a deep love. It's the love that Hosea has for his wife, even when she's unfaithful. It's the kind of love uh, that the New Testament calls agape, illustrated in the waiting father, watching and waiting and sprinting to his prodigal son, sprinting to him to protect him from the baying crowds that want to show this little toe rag a thing or two for what he'd done. It's that sort of love. See, in the depths you give up on yourself, but as you come out, you learn that God never, ever, ever gave up on you. That's love. In the depths, we learn that in God there's full redemption. 
The person who remembers the guilt, the daily reminder of their shortcomings, also knows that God, though aware of them, has freed them, and they matter no more. One who has been to the depths knows that they did nothing to earn this, nothing to give towards it. It is a gift to know that. So in the pain, there is a gift. Now, my predecessor is a lady called the Reverend Dr. Sharon Smith. She did a PhD on the intersection of schizophrenia and uh, spirituality. And 12 years ago, her late husband died by suicide. Uh, she features in the course we've just created. You, the third film features her. But she shared with me once that her husband's death, wait for it, is, was God's gift to her wrapped in barbed wire that she's still opening. It's a profoundly painful act, but in the wrestle, in the struggle, in the pain, God is actually somehow shaping her to be more in the image of Christ. Now, that's her. She owns that statement, okay? I think that's an incredible thing to say. I, I don't understand it on many levels, but I respect it. And I would say that for her, hope has become a very real thing in the midst of pain. And that can be true for each one of us. You know, God may meet us in therapy rooms, in worship, when we exercise, wherever he meets us. In all of these things, we wait for him to reach in and whisper words of life. So when someone is in the depths, we respect the cry from the depths. We wait with the person and we listen to the wisdom that comes forth from their experiences of having been through the depths and encountered God along the way. This is all about a trust relationship. To trust that God is at work, even when we can't see him. To trust that transformation is on God's agenda. I was a minister for eight years. I got absolutely worn out. I had no way of talking about it and framing it. Leaders and ministers get worn out too. So I say this to each of you as an aside as I close. Um, look after this man. Look after Jace. Speak well of him. If ever there's a problem, talk to him. Don't talk to others. And the other leaders in the church, I think it's a remarkable thing that you're doing here. And uh, if this can be a culture from the start where you talk about these difficult things, you will change the world. I promise you. There are not many churches doing that. So I'm greatly encouraged by you, by your willingness to, uh, to talk about this. Can I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your plans are always redemptive. And I know you have a redemptive plan for each one of us. Those that have lived or are currently living in the depths. Lord, our suffering is not in vain. Just as Jesus, your suffering was not in vain. Lord, take this community, take this family. And may it become a beacon of hope in a world where so many are hurting and isolated. Lord, we ask these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.